A Focused Summary of Part 1, Chapter 10 of Silas Marner Justice Malam was more comfortable drawing conclusions even than the Ravelo villagers, and on the basis of the tinderbox evidence, an inquiry concerning a peddler with large earrings was set in motion. When nothing came of it, the people of Ravelo gradually lost interest in the case. No one remarked on the disappearance of Duncey, since it was common for him to go off nobody knew where and then reappear, and no one, not even Godfrey, thought to connect his absence with the crime. Godfrey's bitter imagination gave Duncey an alibi. He pictured Duncey walking away from wildfire, sponging off acquaintances, having a great old time, and plotting a return to torment his brother. Even if anyone had put the two facts together, they wouldn't dare cast aspersions on a venerable family that provided their Christmas feasts. Opinion was fairly evenly divided between those who advocated the tinderbox theory and those who believed in a supernatural explanation. Though their arguments did little to elicit the truth concerning the robbery, they elicited many about each other's faults. While his neighbors idly gossiped, Silas suffered a withering desolation. To onlookers, his life may have appeared empty, but to him it had been an eager one, filled with purpose. It had been a clinging life, and the support had been snatched away. That the loom was still there, and that he could still earn more money, brought no joy, but only a fresh reminder of his loss. He filled the blank with grief. The silver lining to Marner's suffering was that his neighbors began to see him in a new light. Rather than seeing him as a man of cunning and ill-will, they saw him as a poor, mushed creature who was merely crazy. They showed these kindlier feelings in a variety of ways, bringing him food, greeting him in the village streets, and calling on him at his cottage to hear his tale of woe. The comfort they offered was often of a bungling sort, since it is so hard to offer goodwill unadulterated by egoism. Mr. Macy, for example, acted as if he was gifting Marner with his good opinion. He comforted Marner for the loss of his fortune by lecturing him about why he was better off without it, paying him compliments qualified with criticism, speaking in circles that came round to an injunction to keep up his spirits, advising him to get himself a Sunday suit and come to church, and then sitting back to bask in Marner's expected appreciation. Marner, thinking that Mr. Macy meant to be neighborly and good-natured, but having no heart to feel it, first stayed silent, and then, when pressed for it, offered a tentative thank you. Another of his comforters was Dolly Winthrop, who, as a woman of scrupulous conscience, eager for duties, and inclined to seek out the sadder and more serious elements of life, could hardly fail to be drawn to Silas when he appeared in the light of a sufferer. One Sunday, she took her young son Aaron and went to call on Silas. When she knocked at his door, Silas felt no impatience at the unexpected visit. He had a dull sense that if help came, it must come from without, and he felt a slight stirring of expectation at the sight of his fellow men. He invited her in, and she took a seat that Aaron proceeded to hide behind in fear. Dolly offered Silas some lard cakes— pricked with letters she couldn't read, but was certain had a good meaning. 
exhorted him to come to church, and put his trust in them as knows better nor we do, and bribed her son into singing a carol for him, thinking that it might be good for Marner to see such a picture of a child, and that the strain might allure him to church. All the while she repeated her favored phrase, "'If there's any good anywhere, we've need of it.'" There was no mistaking that the words uttered in her quiet tones were meant to bring him comfort, and he said, "'Thank you,' this time with more feeling than he had before. Nevertheless, after she and Aaron made their goodbyes, he felt relief that she was gone, and that he again might moan at his ease. Her simple comforts were foreign to him, and the fountains of human love and faith had not yet been unlocked. And notwithstanding the pressures of Mr. Macy and Mrs. Winthrop, Silas spent Christmas alone, shut up in his robbed home, pressing his head between his hands and moaning. No one but himself knew that he was the same man who had once loved his fellow tenderly and trusted in unseen goodness. Meanwhile, in Ravelow, the villagers gathered in the church, where they felt a vague, exultant sense that something great had been done on heaven and earth that they were appropriating by their presence, and that permitted them for the rest of the day to eat, drink, and be merry without diffidence. The Christmas party at Squire Cass's was for family only. It was the great dance on New Year's Eve that was the preeminent celebration of the season, and made the glory of his hospitality. Godfrey looked forward to this party with a foolish, reckless anticipation, only partly undermined by his anxiety that Duncey might appear, that money was wanted, and that his father might say something that would force him to decline marrying Nancy, and to give reasons. These anxieties he tried to quiet with excess drinking. 